So for those of you who come to church from the south, so I'm talking Marshfield, Plymouth, Kingston, Cape Cod, etc., um, and you come up on 3A, coming up north, there's a part of 3A, I believe before the roundabout, where you cross over a bridge um, of the, the river that goes underneath, right? If you are crossing over that bridge, coming up north, and you look to your left, you'll see a little um, barge, I, I don't know sea terms, but barge where uh, boats are tied to, and on that barge, the past couple of times I've looked, there's been like 30 or 40 seals just laying down there, I guess enjoying the sun, like it's winter, I, I don't know, but they're, they're just chilling there, enjoying the weather. So next time you come up from the uh, south to north on 3A, take a look and see if you can see the seals. Now, with an instruction like that, this is real, it, it wasn't just a bit, but I'm, I'm using it. Um, with, with an instruction like that, it, it's helpful to think about the who and the why, right? Like the who, I clarified, was when you're coming up north on 3A. So if you live in Boston, that instruction doesn't really apply to you, right? And the why of that instruction is to see some cool animals that you wouldn't normally see except in an aquarium, right? So when thinking about instructions, it's helpful, helpful to think about the who and the why. Another example, we just read uh, in our uh, scripture reading about submitting to authority, right? Another good example is taxes, which it's tax season yet again. We think about the who and the why. Who has to pay taxes? Citizens of this country. Why? To pay for things like military, highway maintenance, social security, etc. The who and the why of instruction really helps it click in our minds. Now, our passage today has one of the most famous instructions in the Bible, love your enemies. When we read that, we need to understand who has given that instruction and why that instruction has been given. It's not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because as Christians, we are chosen in love by God to remember our inheritance and to follow His example no matter the circumstance. Let me say that one more time. As Christians, we are chosen in love by God to remember our inheritance and follow His example no matter the circumstance. So to break it down kind of into our three sections of our passage today, there's God calls us to Himself, so remember the inheritance we are given and be merciful to others as God is merciful to us. God choosing us has an impact on our lives. It has an impact on how we view life circumstances and how we treat others. So let's read our passage today and see that in action. Once again, Luke 6, starting in verse 12. In, those, in these days, he, referring to Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who is called the Zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who would become a traitor. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those with whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now our passage starts today with a a beautiful picture of Jesus going to the mountain to pray, to have personal time with his father before making the important decision of choosing the apostles. And we read that Jesus continued in prayer all night. And the sun rises and the next day comes and he goes and chooses the 12 apostles from the disciples that he had. Now this might seem a little confusing because apostles and disciples kind of seem like they should be the same thing, right? We often refer to them as the 12 disciples. We don't necessarily hear them as the 12 apostles. Disciple means a learner or a follower, while apostle means a messenger or one that is sent out. So while they can technically be used interchangeably. Apostle is a, a, a messenger, a, a leader of the faith, and a disciple is more like a, a general term of, of a follower of Jesus. So Jesus here is choosing the 12 apostles whom he would later send out into the world to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them. They would be the new leaders within the faith. Jesus is choosing them now and not like right before he dies because 
First, they had to be with Jesus in his ministry to be eyewitnesses of his life and his death. And it's important to note that there were already Jewish religious leaders, right? The Pharisees. But if the past few weeks in Luke have taught us anything, it's that the religious leaders of that day were woefully off track and not fit to lead spiritually. So Jesus chooses new leaders, calling them to himself. Jesus here is setting the record straight for who would lead his people. And it wasn't going to be the self-righteous Pharisees, but a select chosen few from all backgrounds. And the fact that Jesus is the one that calls these apostles to himself is important because that's what all God does. He chooses people. He calls people to himself, even us as Christians. Paul says in Ephesians that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And of course, we all know the classic verse. We know that for, all, for those who love God, all things work together for good. But we often leave out the second half, which says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Or Jesus himself says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Jesus choosing the 12 apostles after prayer with his father is a great example in scripture of God choosing his people. So this makes it even more impactful when instruction like love your enemy comes from Jesus because it's not just a broad lesson, but a pointed instruction to a people that Christ himself has chosen. It's the difference between a vague, can someone clean that up? And a specific assignment from a boss to an employee. When we remember that instruction comes from the God who has chosen us, It should be our top priority. So back to the apostles. Who are these 12 that Jesus has chosen? We have Peter, Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, Simon, non-traitor Jesus, and the Judas, important clarification, and the traitor Judas. So some of those names should look pretty familiar, right? We've heard of James, we've heard of Peter, We've heard of Matthew. These men that Jesus has chosen, some of them went on to write the New Testament that we read today. To write the eyewitness account of Jesus that we read today. It's important to realize this, that Jesus' decision in our first few verses today isn't just like an administrative thing, like, oh, well, well, we're reading through the book of Luke, so I guess we have to read these verses. No, these verses are important because it's not just for the people that are living in the world to hear these apostles' voices, but this decision that Jesus has made to choose these 12 impacts us even today as we read the words of those 12 in our Bible. Jesus here chose the ones whom his gospel would be written by and who he would use to give his words through. Even now, these chosen leaders of the faith are leading us through their words that they had written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
This was a very important and impactful decision. But afterwards, after choosing the disciples, Jesus and the apostles rejoin the rest of those who are following Jesus, and they go down from the mountain into a plain and perform various healing and teaching. Now, this is described as a great multitude, a great crowd, all of them seeking to touch Jesus to be healed. Can you imagine how overwhelming this must have been for the newly chosen apostles? They just received a leadership role within the faith from Jesus and are going straight to healing the masses. I'd imagine it would be kind of similar to be hired as a nurse right before March 2020, right? Overwhelming as it might have been, it served an important purpose to show the apostles the mercy of Jesus. To show the apostles the mercy of Jesus. Skip all the way down and look at the very last verse of our passage today, verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So right here, after choosing the apostles, Jesus is giving them an eyewitness account of his mercy. He's displaying the attitude that he would later call his apostles and disciples to have to others. And the mercy of Christ is wonderfully displayed in these verses. This great multitude comes from all over, from all different places, all different backgrounds, and they are healed from unclean spirits and various other ailments that could not have been healed elsewhere. They had a very real need for Christ. There wasn't a vaccine for unclean spirits. There wasn't a once-a-day pill that they could take for these various diseases. Jesus was likely their best and only option for healing. And this situation is exactly what Jesus wanted the apostles to see because it shows his merciful mission. Jesus says in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we have already seen countless times throughout the book of Luke where Jesus does not reside on a high tower with the pompous religious leaders of the time, but instead humbly goes down into the great crowds of sick and sinners to heal, to teach, and to call all to repentance. And that mission was the mission that the apostles were also called to, so they needed to see it with their own eyes. They needed to see it so that they could teach their churches and then write it and teach us. And what's even greater is that the apostles were called to even have this very same sense of neediness for Christ that this sick crowd had. The apostles may not need to touch him for physical healing, but they needed to have a reliance on Christ that is so intense, it is greater than physical, it's spiritual. And again, this is in direct contrast with the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees, who only relied on themselves and their comfort and their power. It's this contrast that Jesus exposes in the next verses, which are commonly known as the Beatitudes. So let's read those Beatitudes in verses 20 to 23. And he, again referring to Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now these beatitudes are incredibly encouraging, right? But we need to keep it in context and perspective. Look at the first, verse, uh, the first half of verse 20 again. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Again, the disciples are the followers of Jesus, those who would learn from his teaching. These beatitudes are specifically for followers of Jesus for whom he has saved and called. Look at these verses. Look carefully. They're promises of a future, right? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And what is this future promise? Look at the second half of verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And even more explicitly in verse 23, behold, your reward is great in heaven. This reward that the disciples are given by God is to be co-heirs with Christ in heaven because our sins are removed from us by Jesus' sacrifice. And that reward is only given to those whom Christ has saved, to whom he has called. Peter clarifies this inheritance in 1 Peter 1. He writes, According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefined, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As Christians, our reward is a living hope that we will be with Christ in heaven and that death will not take us from him and that we will be blameless and holy. So when Jesus says here that the poor will have the kingdom of God, he doesn't mean that all you have to do to get into heaven is to be poor. Or when he said you are blessed when people hate you, he's certainly not encouraging you to make people hate you so that you become blessed. And of course, when he says you are blessed when you weep, he's not encouraging you to make yourself cry by watching a really sad movie. This message is specifically for his disciples to not be afraid of life's circumstances, but to continually look forward to their imperishable inheritance. Now, this is great, but why is Jesus mentioning this now? Jesus is using this intense situation of a huge crowd desperately trying to touch him to be healed to give the disciples a very clear picture of how the spiritually sick can only be healed by him. But this spiritual healing isn't just the removal of an unclean spirit or virus. It's being born again into a new body in heaven that cannot ever die or be unclean. It's that hope that should encourage us and spur on the disciples in their own ministry. That hope can not be taken away by life circumstances, whether it be poverty, hunger, or pain. 
Just as the physically sick in that crowd can rejoice when they are healed by Jesus, those who Jesus has called can rejoice in whatever circumstance when they depend on him. This is an encouragement that when you suffer, when you are poor, when you are hungry, when you are weeping, when others hate you, you still have your inheritance. And this is a lifelong promise. Verse 23 mentions, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is the same promise of an inheritance with Christ that the prophets in the Old Testament were given when they preached God's word and were hated for speaking the truth. Rejoice that the prophets that were ridiculed for proclaiming Christ are now with Christ in heaven, worshiping him and rejoicing. While those who hated them and reviled Christ are dead and gone. Essentially, your life circumstances do not influence your inheritance in Christ. What Christ has given through his sacrifice on the cross cannot be spent away like money can. It cannot spoil like food can. It cannot come and go like emotions do, and it can never be determined by a popularity contest. And this is so encouraging that when others hate us, exclude us, revile us, and spurn our name as evil, we can rejoice in that day and leap for joy. And this is so encouraging for Christians. And sometimes I think it can be a little too encouraging because I think sometimes we tend to think whenever someone hates us that we are being blessed. But remember that these verses say specifically when you speak on account of the Son of God, right? So if you go to a baseball game in Yankee Stadium wearing a Red Sox hat and people yell and curse at you. I don't necessarily think you're being blessed by God in that moment, right? This is specifically when you follow Jesus's commands and are hated and are reviled for it. So we have an incredible inheritance that cannot be taken away But there is also an incredible warning in these next verses for those who choose to abandon hope in Christ for earthly pleasures instead. Let's read on, starting in verse uh, 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who speak now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now these verses are clearly an antithesis of the Beatitudes, right? We have poor versus rich, hungry versus full, happy versus sad, hated versus popular. And the same rules for the Beatitudes apply here. Just because you are full after a delicious meal doesn't mean that you aren't blessed. Just because your spouse says that they're proud of you, uh, that doesn't mean that woe is applied for you because someone spoke well of you, right? 
So if the Beatitudes were meant to compare the disciples to the sick crowd desperate for Jesus, it's clear that these woes are meant to compare to the self-righteous Pharisees. Those who recognize their need for Jesus will reap rewards when he is merciful to them, but those who foolishly think that earthly pleasures equal spiritual contentment will only reap pain. These woes are still talking about a promise for the future, but this time it is no longer of an incredible inheritance. It's a warning for a deadly punishment. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. There's even a direct comparison with verses 23 and 26 with prophets and false prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were hated and yet still have a reward in heaven. But false prophets who were spoken well of are still given woes. It's a solemn warning to us and reminder that popularity does not always equal truthfulness. Sometimes the most popular Christian content is the most popular for a reason because it can display an easily digestible, glamorous Christian life that simply isn't true. One that points us to look within ourselves for hope rather than desperation for our God. So when you're looking for a Christian resource, read the Bible, but then next, when you're looking for a Christian resource, don't automatically assume that the top seller is the best or the one with the author on the New York Times bestsellers list. Faithfulness and truthfulness comes from using God's word as a foundation rather than sprinkled in for weak validation. A good test is to see if the resource sounds more like the Beatitudes or the woes. Does it promise hope and peace or ease and popularity? Both the Beatitudes and the woes are a direct response to the notion that religion equals an easy life, a lie that existed back then and even today. The idea that God's calling will lead to an easy life full of popularity and painlessness doesn't come from God. If we're honest, it's how we feel God should bless us if we were God. But God isn't us, and his blessings are far greater and far deeper than momentary happiness. It's an inheritance of eternal joy and peace. Or as Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So now that Jesus has made it clear that he is the one who calls us and how that calling affects us, now we get the instruction for how we ought to treat others. Or think of it this way. We've understood with the Beatitudes how God's calling affects us internally with the hope of an inheritance, no matter what the circumstance. And now we see how that affects us externally with how we ought to treat others. Let's reread verses Uh, 27 to 31. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Wow. What an intensely countercultural instruction. Just like how we can be naturally inclined to want power and popularity, we can naturally want revenge on those who harm us. And remember that Jesus is saying all of this within the context of his disciples and his apostles who will be the new leaders of the faith, therefore in contrast to the Pharisees. With the Beatitudes and the woes, he's saying don't adopt their worldview of earthly pleasures equal blessedness, but rather remember your inheritance. And now he's saying when enemies persecute you because of your faith, don't fight back or take revenge, but instead love them. So these instructions aren't necessarily a checklist to follow with every interaction, but rather a posture that our hearts ought to have when interacting with others, especially others that would hate us. To love them rather than hate back. To not give them more reason to hate, but make it harder for them to hate. And this is a really bitter pill to take and certainly tough instruction to follow isn't our first instinct when persecuted to defend our pride or to think and act like we are better than them unfortunately our human nature is sin and sin is often selfish and prideful but jesus has a greater calling for us be merciful even as your father is merciful He says to love your enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, which is kind of a general statement, but gets more specific as he goes. His first example is to bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Not only is this instruction to wish good on those who wish harm upon you, it's to go the extra step and actually pray for good on those who wish harm upon you. To actively plead with God on their behalf. So if you are being persecuted specifically for being Christian, when you pray for them and bless them, it's not a passive-aggressive, oh, bless your heart, but rather an earnest plea for their salvation and that they would find peace in Christ. Or maybe a little bit more specific an example. If you accidentally cut someone off on the road and they hurl obscenities at you and lay on their horn, you give an apologetic wave, You let them pass and you continue safely. And then you pray for their good. And I'm not talking, let them be a better driver, God. No. You pray for their health, their well-being, and their soul. Something like, please calm their hearts and keep them safe. When someone curses you, you don't get a free pass to curse them back. You have an obligation to bless them. Next, Jesus says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, I've talked about this instruction in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago, specifically that this command is not saying to allow someone to harm you. It's a command to have an attitude of forgiveness and love, one that simultaneously protects yourself and loves the other. So for example, 
if someone publicly shames you for being a Christian, like a slap in the face, you give them another chance by speaking to the hope and love that you have in Christ. You don't shy away from it or try to defend yourself by deflecting. Ultimately, this verse means don't justify their behavior by matching it. Don't justify their behavior by matching it. Don't slap back when you are slapped or insult back when you're insulted. So if someone says to you, do you really believe everything the Bible says? You're so backwards. You don't insult back, but turn the cheek to say yes, because it's the inspired word of God. You give them another chance by giving them more information rather than agreeing to a fight. Next, we get more of an intense instruction. Jesus says, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Just like the previous verses, this is an instruction for a loving Christ-like attitude. I, th- I honestly think one of uh, the best examples of having this attitude and this command comes from my favorite musical, Les Miserables, based on the book by Victor Hugo. In this play, if you don't know it, a man named Jean Valjean is released from prison and has nowhere to go. A bishop lets him stay in the church with him, but Valjean steals some silver silverware, back when silverware was actually silver, and tries to leave. He steals from the bishop who was kind to him. When he is caught from police, he lies to the police saying, no, the bishop gave me this as a gift. The police obviously don't believe him, so they take him back to the bishop. And they tell the bishop what happened. And the bishop says, yes, I gave him that silver, and he even forgot these two precious silver candlesticks, the best silver that I have. He dismisses the police, thanking them for their duty, and gives Valjean the rest of the silver. Obviously, Jean Valjean is really confused here. Why did the bishop defend him when he just stole from him? And why is he giving him the silver that he tried to steal? The bishop offers this explanation. He says, but remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. The bishop uses this opportunity to show Jean Valjean the love of Christ, which is worth more than silver. It's a chance to give Valjean an opportunity to do better, the means to choose an honest life, a God-honoring life. To stop the loop of poverty, where you steal, you get thrown in jail, you get out of jail, you have nowhere to go, so you steal again. And if you don't know this musical, this is a moment that changes Jean Valjean's life forever. He goes on to honor God by protecting the innocent, caring for the poor, and loving those who persecute him, all because of the bishop's act of kindness towards him. This is a command to value people over possessions and to not reward persecution with violence and insults, but rather view it as an opportunity to love. So what about us today? So, Yes, please call the police when someone is robbing your house. Don't say, Neil told me to give you all this. But if we're being honest, 
Maybe pray to decide if you want to press charges or not. Maybe go and visit them during their court date to tell them that you forgive them. Whatever action you take, make sure that it is valuing them as someone created in the image of God and act in love rather than retribution. Love rather than retribution. And finally, Jesus wraps it up with what is commonly known as the golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Even though you may want revenge, you wouldn't want someone to take revenge out on you. You would want forgiveness. Consider how your actions can affect others and think twice before acting rashly or aggressively. Consider how your words would affect you if the woes were reversed. Consider how Christ had humility without sacrificing truth. Ultimately, with all of these instructions, Christ sees through to our hearts that a need for revenge and for others to be indebted to us is really just a need for pride, which has no place in God's kingdom. Now, what explanation does Jesus give for why we need to act that way? Let's read our final verses, verses 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you would expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I think the best way to explain these verses is to look at one specific moment. Expect nothing in return. Expect nothing in return. We can be so conditioned by our modern culture to view everything as a transaction, right? I love you to get something back, whether it be something physical like a gift or something abstract like approval. Or we only do good to those who do good to us because there's no stakes or risks in that. We know what to expect. Jesus gives the specific example of lending. If you lend someone $10 and they give back $10, it's a wash. That's what it's like when we do good to those who do good to us. So that's normally why we add interest, right? To get more out of it. But Jesus is saying to expect nothing in return. To give away your silver like the bishop did, even though Valjean could give nothing back. In that play, Valjean never sees the bishop again. They never cross paths. The bishop never knows the good that that single moment had in Jean Valjean's life. He did it to expect nothing in return. It may be a net loss in the present, but Jesus says that your reward will be great. Just like the Beatitudes, he's saying, focus on your inheritance. Focus on the future, which has greater rewards than anything you can earn here. Think about it. What could possibly be gained by loving your enemies? Certainly not a leg up in a fight or convincing them that that you're right and they're wrong. Jesus is telling us to completely change our thinking, to stop thinking about what we might get out of an interaction, to stop thinking of interactions with enemies as fights where someone wins and another loses. 
but rather as an opportunity to love and be merciful like Jesus loves and like Jesus is merciful. How much did Jesus love his enemies? He died for them. And it wasn't some heroic death in an action movie where the hero jumps on a grenade to save his friends. No, no, no. Jesus was beaten, mocked, publicly shamed, and brutally murdered by his enemies, and he let them. And it wasn't just the physical pain. He took on the spiritual pain of the sins of the entire world. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for all transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He not only let his enemies kill him, but he did it to heal them, to bring them peace, to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be brought back to him. See this very clearly. Jesus' reward for loving his enemies was his enemies. We are his reward. His church is his reward. All of this worship, all of this good that we do in his name, it is all his reward for his ultimate sacrifice and mercy. Everything that Jesus commands us to do in these verses, he has done himself, particularly on the way to the cross. See this. This is very important. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. As Jesus was being hung on the cross, what did he pray? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He prayed for those who abused him. What about striking, like turning the other cheek? Or when someone takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Before he was given his cross, Jesus was intensely interrogated by Pontius Pilate. And he said, yes, I am the Christ, as you say so. And he was stripped and whipped with a crown of thorns put on his head. His garments were given away to the highest bidder. His cloak and his tunic. What about give to everyone who begs from you? Earlier in our passage today, verses 17 to 19, Jesus healed a great multitude of beggars, giving them exactly what they wanted and needed, which was healing. And finally, for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. With this one, Jesus actually took it a step further. He gives us goods in his inheritance, which we now share with him and can never be taken away. His love can never be taken away. He will never demand his love back from us. Paul says in Romans that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now we see why he says in verse 35 that if we follow his example, we will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. All of that, 
all of what Jesus has done during his entire life and on his way to the cross and even now in heaven interceding for us, all of that he views as mercy. And mercy it is indeed. How else? Can you possibly describe an all-powerful God giving a free way to be brought back to him when we have rebelled in sin? A way that is only free because he paid the cost with his own life so that we may live. How else may we describe that but kindness towards the ungrateful and the evil? What a kind and loving God we worship. So church, let us follow Jesus' example. Jesus knew that the reward for his sacrifices leading to the cross would far outweigh the pain, the suffering, the shame, and yes, even the death. And he did it all because of his kindness, his mercy, and most of all, his love for us. And now he instructs us to have that same kindness, that same mercy, and that same love. We've seen that the who of this instruction to love your enemies is the God who has called us to an inheritance that cannot be taken away no matter what life circumstance has. And we saw the why behind this instruction, which is to be merciful as our Father is merciful. Becoming more Christ-like means following his example, which he gave in his entire life, specifically on his sacrifice on the cross. So as we close Hear these words from Romans 12 as Paul encourages the Romans to remember Jesus' instruction for loving your enemies. Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.